Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Will Colson. This week, we take a deep dive into relations between two key U.S. allies, Japan and Australia. As U.S. allies in Asia continue the process of networking their security relationships for better strategic and operational capability, the unique relationship between Australia and Japan has come to the forefront. In the context of changing norms in Japan over the role of its military, from alterations to Japan's constitution to higher military spending so that it can play a more forward-leaning role in ensuring security in the Asia-Pacific, Australia has been an essential partner. Joining us to provide an assessment from Japan's perspective on the history of the relationship with Australia and identifying where Tokyo can do more with Canberra is CSIS Strategic Japan Fellow Tomohiko Satake. You'll also hear from CSIS's Andrew Shearer, who served as National Security Advisor to Australian Prime Ministers John Howard and Tony Abbott, to get context from down under on what the relationship means for both countries. To begin, we asked Tomo Satake to explain what the drivers are for closer cooperation between Japan and Australia. I think there are, are many issues behind uh, strong Japan-Australia security cooperation. Um, you know, the rise of China is definitely important, but also important things are, are uh, what is called growing risks and uh, uncertainties in the Asia-Pacific region. And, and, and those things include the future of Korean Peninsula, uh, growing tensions in both East and South China Sea, and, and, and the future course of you know, U.S. military uh, engagement or U.S. military presence. Uh, uh, in the region. So, so I think Japan-Australia security cooperation uh, uh, is not only uh, to hedge against the right of China, uh, uh, but to hedge against uh, any uh, uncertainties or unpredictability uh, in the region. Um, and I think this is a major reason why uh, Japan and Australia have uh, got closer uh, over the past, uh, past two decades. Um, and also, uh, Japan and Australia have uh, common interests uh, in protecting and uh, strengthening uh, what is called a rule-based uh, liberal international order. Um, um, so, so I think the uh, Prime Minister uh, Tambo uh, uh, recently said that you know Japan and Australia are all weather friends, uh, sharing common perceptions for what a desirable regional order is and how to achieve and such an order. And, and I think that this is pretty much correct. And, and I think these common perceptions for uh, uh, what is a desirable uh, international order uh, have been major drivers behind this uh, expanding cooperation uh, between Japan and Australia. And how much does a positive relationship between leaders matter in addition to common norms and values? For Japan and Australia, Andrew Shearer argues it can make a massive difference. The fundamentals have to be in place in any strategic relationship if it's to have real content and real momentum and that means that there needs to be a strong alignment of interests Uh, there needs to be ideally a very heavy degree of shared values and mutual trust in each other and I think all of those things together mean that the two countries in question tend to develop a similar outlook on the threats that they face and the challenges and a strong platform, if you like, for for tackling them together. But having said that, there's no question that leadership and the chemistry between national leaders really does matter. In the case of 
Australia and Japan, the most obvious examples are the the warm relationship between former Prime Minister John Howard, my old boss, and um, Prime Minister Koizumi, his counterpart. Um, and the way this, this worked in that case was that because of those conditions that I mentioned and the degree of trust between the two leaders, Japan felt confident in about 2004 to ask Howard uh, for deployment of the Australian Defence Force to work with Japanese engineers in Mathana province in southern Iraq. Obviously a very sensitive mission whenever uh, Japan's self-defence force is deployed overseas. And so having Australia there uh, providing force protection for the engineers gave Koizumi confidence that the mission could continue safely. Uh, but also he had the confidence through his rapport with Howard that if he made the request, it would be granted and there'd be no no loss of face. And it was that deployment in 2005 that really unlocked the Australia-Japan strategic relationship. It led to the Joint Declaration on Security Cooperation, which um, Howard then signed with Prime Minister Abe during Prime Minister Abe's first period as Prime Minister in 2007, and that's really been the framework for the strategic relationship. And I guess the other example that I've been closely involved in is the the very strong chemistry between uh, Prime Minister Abe during his second period in office and uh, another of the Australian Prime Ministers I worked for, Tony Abbott, um, and they really did develop a, a very strong uh, personal friendship and relationship uh, that really propelled forward uh, the strategic relationship between Australia and Japan again. And just in the interests of sort of bipartisanship, I'd say that um, Prime Minister Julia Gillard, to her credit, um, uh, Labor Prime Minister, um, did commit herself to the Australia-Japan strategic relationship and she paid a, a very important visit to Japan just after the Fukushima earthquake disaster. Um, just within days of that happening, Australia deployed C-17 military transport aircraft to respond to that emergency. They carried in equipment that was necessary to stabilise the nuclear reactors at Fukushima, so a very important role. And I know, because um, I was in Japan uh, at the same time as Prime Minister Gillard, uh, just what an impression both the Australian military contribution and her visit at that time made made to Japan. So, so leadership matters, uh, and when you have um, strong leadership chemistry in place, the challenge for policymakers and alliance managers is to institutionalise as much of the cooperation as possible while those windows are open because windows by their nature also close and you know if you look at what Australia and Japan have done over this period you know it's exactly that they've put in place uh, first a, an AXA agreement a logistics agreement now an enhanced uh, AXA uh, acquisition and cross-servicing agreement uh, there's an information and intelligence sharing agreement in place uh, and the two countries are now working on a reciprocal access agreement, which will provide the legal framework for uh, Australian forces to exercise in Japan and Japanese forces to exercise in Australia. So these are very important institutional pieces uh, of a stronger, closer um, strategic relationship between Australia and Japan.
While Japan appears to be very forward-leaning towards a closer military-to-military relationship, we asked Tomo for evidence on whether Australia is equally keen on a deeper relationship. Here's what he had to say. So, Luke, uh, Australia is a country uh, that has always uh, encouraged Japan's bigger security roles uh, in the region and beyond. Australia welcomed, for example, Japan's uh, contribution to uh, peacekeeping operations, both in Cambodia and East Timor uh, in the 1990s. Um, Australia's you know, defense forces, ADF, also supported uh, Japanese uh, self-defense forces uh, during their uh, reconstruction effort in Iraq in 2005. And, and most recently, Australia made a clear statement to welcome and support Japan's new security legislation, uh, of which passed diet in September 2015. So, so, so whenever Japan tried to expand its security roles, you know, Australia has been already there. Uh, and, and supporting Japan's uh, what is called security uh, normalization uh, has been one of major reasons why Australia has enhanced security cooperation with Japan. And, and I think it should be uh, uh, so uh, in the foreseeable future as well. Andrew Shearer agrees that Australia's encouragement of Japan has been unique. He describes the history of Australia's support for Japan's heightened involvement in the regional security order. Well, I think it's interesting to go back to a little bit of the history. Um, you know, Australia and Japan, of course, were enemies. We were at war during the, the Pacific War, uh, which was a very, very nasty war indeed. Um, but very soon after that war ended, a couple of important things happened. The first one was that we entered the Cold War and there was real concern about... Um, communist aggression, and in, partic in particular in Australia's region, um, aggression by communist China directed, for example, at Southeast Asia. And at the same time, there was understandably in Australia a, a concern about Japan at some point in the future returning to its sort of militaristic ways. Australia, though, very quickly saw the potential for Japan as a vital economic partner, but also as a, a broader partner um, in terms of dealing with the communist threat. And what's interesting to me is that in order to guarantee our security against a return of militarism in Japan, Australia negotiated the ANZUS Treaty with the United States, if you like, as a quid pro quo for um, signing the San Francisco peace treaty. Once Australia had the confidence and the security provided by that binding treaty with the United States, we very quickly reached out to Japan, signed a commerce agreement with Japan in 1957, so only a decade after the end of the war. And on that basis, what happened was the development of this extraordinary economic partnership that was right at the centre of Japan's modernisation and the whole sort of Asian economic miracle, uh, and also a diplomatic partnership, which is probably the closest and most important, um, I would argue, one of the closest and most important in the region. And Japan and Australia, in a sort of unobtrusive way, cooperated very closely together uh, on the, the peace process in Cambodia, for example, um, in East Timor after the Interfed intervention there in the late 1990s, and on a whole lot of other issues, uh, establishing APEC, 
uh, later on establishing the East Asia Summit and a whole host of other regional initiatives. And that's because of the, the extent of the shared interest between the two countries and the way we see the region in similar ways and our commitment to open regional institutions and the US role. So there's this incredible diplomatic partnership, which really has done a very large amount indeed to shape the way the region is is today, probably under-acknowledged. But the missing dimension, if you like, is the is really the more strategic one and the sort of hard security dimension. And so what I think you can see happening now is that with threats rising in the region, with the... Um, with the liberal regional order that has underpinned peace and prosperity for 70 years, now much more contested uh, and under some strain. Uh, you've got North Korea, you've got China it's, and its increasing assertiveness in the South China Sea and the East China Sea, for example, and China exerting its influence in other ways, including economic coercion and um, cyber and all sorts of other sort of coercive uh, aspects of China's behaviour. There's an increasing onus on countries in the region to step up their own efforts. And I think because of the the decades of mutual trust built up between Australia and Japan, uh, there's been a, a confidence on Australia's part that Japan will continue to play a very responsible role in the region, that um, that it's been an impeccable international citizen for over half a century and that it's time, as uh, Tony Abbott said uh, in a press conference with Prime Minister Abe, to give Japan a fair go. And, and when you look at the contribution that Japan makes in terms of development assistance, in terms of investment in infrastructure, in terms of building maritime capacity in Southeast Asia in terms of um, its financial contributions through organisations like the Asian Development Bank, the World Bank and so forth. Um, it's very clear that Japan has already made a vital contribution to prosperity and peace in the Asia-Pacific, uh, but that um, it's ready to step up and do more. And I think um, if you look at what Prime Minister Abe has been doing, in particular in the last few months, that's exactly what's happening. And as someone who's um, been involved in encouraging Japan in this direction, uh, you know, over over more than a decade, I think it's actually very uh, encouraging indeed to see this taking place. How do closer Japan-Australia ties benefit the United States? How will China react to a strengthened U.S. alliance network? I think the U.S. will uh, benefit from a strong Japan-Australia ties uh, for for a number of reasons. And and first of all, Japan and Australia can individually or often collectively support the U.S. forward military presence uh, uh, through, uh, uh, for example, hosting U.S. military or facilities uh, or you know conducting joint military exercises and so on. Um, and that helped the U.S. power projection capabilities uh, a lot, uh, which is crucial for uh, regional peace and and stability. Um, secondly, uh, Japan and Australia can assume greater responsibilities for, for the regional stability uh, and, and partly uh, supplement the U.S. security roles in the region. 
Um, for instance, Japan and Australia can increase in their roles in HADR, you know, capacity building and material security frameworks such as ARF4, ADMM Plus, and, and those things can also reduce the burden of the United States uh, uh, in providing what is called the public good uh, in the region. Um, and finally, uh, Japan and Australia can jointly enhance norms and principles uh, such as the rule of law, freedom of navigation, and peaceful resolution of conflicts. And, and I think these norms and principles are uh, the foundations of a stable order uh, in the region. Um, and the U.S. greatly benefit from growing voices from regional countries to protect these uh, norms and rules. And I think the good example uh, is a trilateral uh, joint statement uh, regarding the South China Sea issues. Uh, uh, right after uh, the PCA ruling uh, of the South China Sea in, in July uh, last year. And I think that was one of the uh, strongest uh, uh, statements uh, to, to request you know, all countries to uphold the uh, existing international order and, and to respect uh, the rule of law. So, so I think these are kind of important things. Um, now, the, I think there are some legitimate reasons for China uh, to worry about you know, this kind of strengthening U.S.-led alliance network in the region. Um, but at the same time, um, there are many overlaps of interests uh, between the U.S. alliance and China uh, in protecting a rule-based, rule you know, international order. Um, China has apparently, you know, greatly benefited from such a peaceful environment uh, based on liberal norms and values. And, and free trade is a good example, but other things like the freedom of navigation and peaceful resolution of conflicts are are equally uh, important uh, for China, uh, as well as for uh, U.S. allies and partners. So, so I think how to you know, maximize opportunities of cooperation uh, while minimizing the risks of conflicts between China and regional countries will be crucially uh, important uh, uh, in the next coming years. One area for potential growth is the area of information and intelligence sharing. The United States is a member of the Anglophone Five Eyes grouping, with the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Japan is not a member of the club, but Tomo says other possibilities and mechanisms exist to facilitate intelligence cooperation. It's true that you know Japan is uh, not a member of Five Eyes, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, but Japan has recently uh, concluded uh, a bilateral uh, information security agreement, uh, uh, WGSOMIA, uh, with key regional and global partners, uh, including Australia, you know, South Korea, France, and the United Kingdom. And, and that bilateral approach can, I think, promote you know, better information exchanges or, or intelligence sharing uh, between Japan and other uh, regional and global partners. Um, Japan has also uh, promoted some uh, legal and uh, institutional reforms to, to enhance its information gathering activities. Um, Japan establishing you know, what is called the Secret Protection Act in December uh, 2013 uh, to protect some highly sensitive information. Japan has also enhanced its own intelligence gathering abilities uh, concerning international terrorism and other uh, security issues. So, so, so if these uh, reforms are successful and Japan, I think Japan's intelligence activities will be you know, able to gain you know, greater uh, credentials. And that will eventually help Japan to have greater access to the world intelligence community, uh, uh, including Five Eyes. What is the attitude of these two allies towards Donald Trump's administration? How will they react? Tomo describes the possibility of a Trump shock and how that may impact Japan and Australia. 
I think the uh, reactions to uh, Trump administration are slightly uh, different uh, between uh, these two countries. And I would say that Tokyo is more uh, confident uh, than Canberra, or maybe optimistic you know, than Canberra in terms of their alliance management uh, with the new US administration. Um, and I think that is probably because of their you know, different uh, geostrategic circumstances. And Japan is in front line against North Korea and China, while uh, Australia enjoyed what is called some strategic tips against you know, those threats and rivalries in the region. Um, also, uh, it seems that many uh, Japanese policymakers uh, uh, think that you know, Japan has a little option uh, but to rely on the US, US security protection you know, whoever uh, the president is. Um, having said that, uh, I don't think that, you know, difference will affect uh, the strong Japan stress security cooperation. And as I wrote in my paper, there has been a broad consensus uh, in Australia, you know, whether liberals or conservatives, you know, to support uh, closer security cooperation with Japan uh, under uh, the increasing risks and uncertainties. Um, Australia could even, you know, enhance its alliance commitment uh, in order to maintain uh, the U.S. military engagement in, in the region. You know, that like Japan, Australia has little option but to re rely on the U.S. security protection, uh, fortunately or unfortunately. But this can be also said to the U.S. side uh, as well. And if Trump administration uh, seriously wants to achieve uh, what is called peace uh, through strength, um, it can never uh, ignore uh, regional allies and partners, uh, especially Japan and Australia. And as I said, uh, in these countries are uh, essentially important for the U.S. power projection capabilities uh, to, to this region. So, so, so I think that the strong bilateral and trilateral security cooperation uh, will likely to continue uh, even uh, uh, or pass because of the new U.S. You know, administration. Andrew Shearer analyzes how Trump's selection could affect Japan and Australia, and details how political uncertainty may affect the policy planning and signaling of these two U.S. allies. Overwhelmingly, it seems to me, Jeff, that entering what's undeniably an uncertain period for everyone, um, you know, in this country, but also in the Asia-Pacific and I was out there a couple of weeks ago in Southeast Asia and, you know, there's unquestionably um, a lot of uncertainty out there and, and a fair degree of anxiety also. Um, what's happening with the United States and, and the transition to a new and very different administration is that there's actually even more incentive, I think, for Australia and Japan to tighten their, their strategic cooperation and, and consultation and the way they work together because ultimately, um, at, the, at the bottom of everything else, for Australia and Japan, the overarching goal of our respective strategies and, our, and the foreign policy piece of that is to do whatever we can to support, encourage, uh, sustain strong US engagement in the Asia-Pacific region. And, um, Obviously, military engagement is very important through the forward-deployed U.S. military presence, but it's it's not just military engagement. You know, intensive diplomatic engagement and and economic leadership in the region 
is is incredibly important to to Japan and to Australia, and that's why we have put so much diplomatic effort over decades into building up APEC uh, as the as the region's premier economic body. Um, which has the United States embedded in it rather than many of the alternatives that have percolated up from time to time in the region that have been more exclusively East Asian in their composition and would tend to sort of um, shut the United States out of the region. So, you know, there are very strong reasons for, for Australia and Japan to continue working even more closely together, I would say, to encourage um, U.S. engagement and, and focus on the Asia-Pacific region. And frankly, our voices are likely to be much stronger if they're heard together in unison, reinforcing the same messages here in Washington. And I think it's really interesting that Prime Minister Abe, before his summit um, uh, with President Trump, actually visited Australia, as well as a couple of other Southeast Asian countries, uh, to coordinate with Prime Minister Turnbull before he came and saw the president so that he could carry with him a perspective from the region uh, rather than just a, a Japanese perspective on what's happening. And I think that's a really powerful example of how the Australia-Japan strategic relationship can add value here in, in Washington. And the other aspect, I think, to all of this is that while you can disagree with some aspects of what President Trump has said about alliances, in particular before the inauguration and while he was in, in campaign mode, um, he has a point when he calls out some allies for, for free riding and, and for not carrying their share of the burden. And uh, American allies are going to need to step up because the scale of the threats and the challenges um, is such that the United States simply can't respond to them on its own. And if you look at Japan and if, and if you look at Australia, that's what they're both doing. They're increasing their respective defence budgets. For example, Australia's on a pathway to uh, to grow to 2% of GDP, the sort of NATO target um, within a decade and uh, Japan is starting at a more modest base but it's a it's still a very large defense budget one percent and, and increasing that I don't think they've yet set a, a target as such so th so they're both stepping up individually but demonstrating that Australia and Japan are also looking to do more together and to um, contribute more to regional security, through through their own efforts uh, in in collaboration is another way of signalling to the Trump administration that the US isn't carrying all the load on its own, and I think that's a really important um, message, and it's why Australia and Japan need to be ambitious about the things that they look to do together in the Asia Pacific. Will Prime Minister Abe and Prime Minister Turnbull further institutionalize the current relationship in a way that locks in close security ties between Tokyo and Canberra? Here at CSIS, we'll be watching. That's our show. To learn more about this topic, look for a link to Dr. Tomo Satake's Strategic Japan Working Paper in the show notes. The audio for this podcast was edited by Ribka Gemlingsari.
This podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. Special thanks to Jake Douglas and Dr. Zach Cooper for framing the topic. To learn more, visit our new look, CSIS.org and CogitAsia.com. You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, RSS, or email on CSIS.org. Stop by our Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative site for groundbreaking analysis in Maritime Asia, now in five languages, and check out our latest Reconnecting Asia feature. Also, be sure to listen to our latest China Power podcast on the Trump-Xi Summit with Eli Ratner. I'm Will Colson. Thanks for listening.